0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, good to see everybody tonight. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to John chapter 4. And this evening in our study of the church, I I want to take up a subject that is really of vital importance. Our chief ministry in the church is the exaltation of Christ. You often hear me say that. We say it many, many times. But you might have a question, just how is it that we exalt Christ? And the answer to that question is found in the word worship. We are to worship Christ, and that's the whole reason for our being. One of the songs we sing, I I think that we sing this song. I I have to go back and and look at it and see if it's... uh, I know the song well, so I was thinking maybe we do sing it. But it has a line in it that says, The reason I live is to worship you. And that's a wonderful sentiment as long as we know what true worship is. But I would submit to you that there are many sincere people that have no idea what worship is, and they are sincerely wrong and they're not really worshiping God. So worship, that's not a matter of style. Churches have many different styles. Uh, Styles vary, and they're flexible, but worship is an attitude that can be nailed down. This is not variable. Worship has to be proper in order for it to please God. And a great example of that is what we find here in John chapter 4 and the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. Uh, This is where we'll take our text for tonight and also for Uh, Several Sunday nights as we look at the matter of worship. Now, if you look in John chapter 4, verse number 5, then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being worried, or wearied rather, with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who, uh, which gave us this well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm sure that many of you, in thinking about coming to church tonight, you might have easily slip this notion in your mind, or to say something like this, instead of saying, I'm going to church, I'm going to worship. As a believer, you know that you should worship. Church is a place for worship. If you're born again, you know that you're supposed to worship God. Worship is something that's really in in your spiritual makeup, and that's emphasized over and over again in the Scriptures. In fact, if the reason that we live is to worship God then we would think that there would be many places in the Scripture where people worship God and many activities that revolve around worship. Now, that's true. You can begin with the first book of the Bible, and you'll learn that one of the first things that men knew to do was to worship God. Abel brought an offering. He brought a sacrifice of a lamb. Even Cain knew that he was supposed to worship, although his offering was wrong, and therefore his worship was wrong. Neither of those boys actually stumbled upon the idea of worship. That wasn't just something that arose in their minds just out of nowhere. But this is something that God has put into us. God has ingrained this into us. It's in the human psyche that we are supposed to worship. And so by the time that we get to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, the scriptures have developed a full-blown system of the way that God wanted his people to worship him. And at the center of that system was sacrifice, Always, worship has something to do with sacrifice offered to God. Abel knew that he was to bring a sacrifice. Abraham knew that. All the patriarchs of God in those days, they knew that. And that idea of worship, bringing a sacrifice, recognizing who God is, was something that was modeled by God himself. And that was when God took those animals and he killed them and he made clothing for Adam and Eve. And so we go through the Old Testament and we find worship. The Jews were taught how to worship in the right way. And this is what we see going on here. They knew how to worship, but heathens worshipped in the wrong way. Uh, they they didn't worship God in an acceptable way. And that's still the conflict that we find thousands of years later. We get out of the New Testament, we come into the New, out of the Old, we come into the New, and we get her to John chapter 4, and we find that the problem that Jesus is talking to this woman about is a problem of worship, that there is a right way and there is a wrong way. Now, we notice that the woman of Sychar knew about worship. She knew that she was supposed to worship, and she knew that there was a difference in worship. Now today in our secularized society, we don't really think of the differences in people being mainly a matter of worship, but this is exactly the problem that Jesus saw with this woman. Here's the real heart of the difference between the Jews and this woman. It was a matter of worship. The difference between Jews and Samaritans is worship. And so when Jesus sat at Jacob's well and he conversed with this woman, she was puzzled about this and And she knew the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Why? Why don't Jews deal with Samaritans? Well, there's a lot of reasons we could give, but really at the bottom level, on the very basic level, it's a matter of worship. Who has the right to come to God? Who is acceptable to God? And who is not acceptable to God? Now, the Jews had their system of worship that God had given, but by the time we get here, the Jews had perverted that. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. And here we find a a difference of opinion about worship. What's wrong with man's idea of worship? Well, the Apostle Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1. If you look at verse number 20, Romans chapter 1, verse number 20, Paul says, "...for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead." so that they are without excuse. Now, you recognize that? This is Paul talking about how do we know that God is real. Verse number 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, there is a scripture that tells us that the heathen knows that he is supposed to worship, but he worships wrongly. His worship is blasphemous. But definitely, we see from the scriptures that there is this innate knowledge built into every human being that it's right to worship. The Bible teaches that every person has knowledge of God, and just by the fact that we have knowledge of Him means that we're also going to have knowledge that we need to worship God. Uh, We don't have any difficulty understanding why the heathen doesn't worship correctly. It's because he doesn't know the true God. And so he worships, he makes his sacrifices, and his sacrifices are not offered to the true God, but rather those sacrifices are offered to demons. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, you think with your idols and your sacrifices that you're making, that you're sacrificing to God, but they're all sacrifices made to demons. That's the only other choice. When you get outside of the realm of worshiping the true God, the only thing that's left is the worship of demons. Now, you need to remember that because that's critical. That is critical to what's going on in churches today. If we're not worshiping the true God, all that's left is to worship demons. I know that sounds frightening, but this is, in fact, the danger of Satan's deception. He makes the false seem true, he puts a counterfeit into the place of the real, and people are deceived into thinking that their worship goes up to God, but God doesn't receive it. God does not accept the worship unless it's the worship that he prescribes. And he doesn't see it because the deity is wrong. And that's what happens in many churches. The worship that's supposed to be going to God is actually going to Satan. And I would tell you that in churches all across our country, the deity that's there is wrong. They're just like this woman at the well. They worship, they know not what. Now, do you notice here how Jesus says that God must be worshipped? He said he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so the only acceptable worship is worship that is according to truth. Now, let's break that statement down a little bit. Number one on your listening sheet, worship is regulated by truth. Worship is regulated by truth. In order for worship to be proper, it must be based in the truth. And that's the only thing that God will accept. The character of God is truth. God lives in the truth. And so anything that would magnify him then must have its basis in truth. Now, Jesus said that God is a spirit. That means, of course, that God is immaterial. God can't be confined to any one place at one time. When Solomon built the temple in the Old Testament, he recognized that that was not a place that could contain God. It's because God is an omnipresent God. He's everywhere. And so he can't uh, be made to dwell in temples made with hands. And Paul so eloquently stated that very thing in his message on Mars Hill. Now, it's no wonder, then, that in the first part of the Decalogue, God said, you shall not have any graven images. Not make any graven images. God's not a wood carving. God's not an idol of stone. He can't be graven by art of human device. And so if you wonder, when you come here and you see no statues anywhere, you don't see any relics in here for us to worship, this is the very reason because the Bible tells us that that kind of worship does not please God. That angers God. And so when men build churches with the ambiance of worship and the atmosphere of worship, God says that those things cannot create worship. Now, the Roman Catholic will try to defend his idea of idols, and they'll say, well, we don't worship idols. The idols aid our worship it reminds us of who god is or it represents who god is but we certainly know that our statues and all the things that we have those aren't god but is that worshiping god in truth now that's what the israelites did when they made the golden calf moses was upon the mountain and he was conversing with god and he'd been there for a long time And the Israelites became restless about that. Uh, Moses and God were not working according to their timetable. And so at the same time that God was giving Moses the commandment that said, you shall not make any graven images, Israel was at the foot of the mountain making a golden calf. And what did they say about that calf? Did they claim that that calf was Jehovah God? Well, no, they, weren't, they didn't say that was Jehovah God, but they did think that they were honoring God. They'd made a representation that matched their perceptions. They knew that that golden calf is not the very thing that caused the waters to part at the Red Sea. And they knew it wasn't what drowned the Egyptians. What they had made was just a memorial, just something that would remind them of God. And what did God do? Well, if it wasn't for the intercession of Moses, he would have destroyed them all right there. But instead, there were 3,000 of them that died. Why? Because they didn't worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, there was another incident that didn't involve golden calves, but this is when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were about to enter into the priest's office. The sons of Aaron were the assistants in the priesthood, and what God had done, he'd showed his favor on Israel by sending fire down to consume the sacrifice that Aaron made. Now that, of course, would have been a magnificent sight. I mean, you can't imagine what that would have been like to see fire come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice that was made. That showed God was with them. Well, right after that, Nadab and Abihu put strange fire into their censers, fire that God had not commanded, and God sent fire again. Only this time the fire didn't consume a sacrifice. It came and it consumed Nadab and Abihu. Now, why did God do that? It was because God is concerned about proper worship. God prescribes worship, and it has to be done in spirit and in truth. Then there's another time that God, or the Bible illustrates how much that God demands proper worship. And this is when Uzzah reached out his hand to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And I don't know if we have a a better example in the scriptures that is more narrowly focused on this, that God wants to be worshipped in the right way and according to his exact plan. You see, God never deviated from the original plans that he gave uh, in the Old Testament concerning the tabernacle. What we just discussed, these were things that Moses was receiving up on Mount Sinai. It was the system of worship that he was giving to his people, and God never deviated from those plans. But what God did at the time that Uzzah lived, and that's in the time of David, it shows how that he intended to snap Israel out of the lackadaisical attitude that they had towards worship. So here is something that happens 500 years after God gave those plans for the tabernacle. Now, it was God's plan that the tribe of Levi would perform all priestly functions. All, everything that had to do with worship, not just priesthood, but everything that had to do with worship, was given to the tribe of Levi to take care of, everything that's attendant to worship. Now, the family of Aaron, they were from the tribe of Levi, and they're the particular family that was chosen for priesthood. But there were other families in Levi that had different functions. And there were three families that were particularly responsible for setting up and tearing down the tabernacle when it was moved. Now, as you know, the tabernacle was moved many times during those 40 years that Israel went through the wilderness, and it was always the duty of these three particular families to take care of moving the tabernacle. Three families, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, took care of moving the tabernacle. Always them, never anybody else, just those three families. Now, the sons of Gershon took care of the tent covering, and they took care of the linen court, that's the fence that went all the way around the tabernacle area and they took care of the cords that tied all of that together and supported it. Then the sons of Merari took care of the boards that were used as the infrastructure of the tabernacle. The coverings went over the boards. They took care of those boards and the sockets of silver that were the foundations. They took care of those things. Then the last family is the family of Kohath and they took care of all the furnishings that were inside of the tabernacle. And so they had charge of the altar of incense and the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, all of the cups and bowls and censers that were used in worship, and also the tabernacle's most sacred piece, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. And for 500 years, these same families took care of all the same duties. So the sons of Merari, they couldn't load up the furnishings because that wasn't their job. And the sons of Gershon, they couldn't pack up the boards and the sockets. That was not their job. And the, the sons of Koath, they didn't take down the linen fence and they didn't remove the tent coverings from the boards. That was not their job. And even though all of them are from the family of Levi, not all of them could put on the robes of the priest. That's the family of Aaron, only they can wear the priest robes. So each one of those families stuck to the job that they were to do because God prescribed their specific contribution to his worship. Now, an interesting thing about the way that Kohath moved the tabernacle furnishings was that they weren't allowed to actually see what they were moving. Now, they never went into the tabernacle, and somebody said, Now, two of you guys go over there, and you pick up the uh, altar of incense, And two more of you, you go over here and you pick up the lampstand. And two more, you go pick up the table of showbread. And two of you guys go into the Holy of Holies and you pick up the Ark of the Covenant and you bring that out because we have to move it. That never happened. Now what happened was, is that the priests had always covered up those items so that the sons of Koath, the the members of the Koath family, they never saw what they were moving. All of this stuff was covered up. And so when they wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant, particularly, there were rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant, and there were long staves that went through those rings on either side of the Ark of the Covenant, and they picked it up by those staves, and they were never able to touch the Ark. Only those staves, they picked it up. And God said, I don't want you to transport it in any other way, but you are to carry this. You carry it. Wherever you go. So they weren't allowed to put it on a wagon or anything like that to, to transport the ark. Well, we come to Uzzah 500 years later, and Uzzah was one of the sons of Koath, and so he was responsible for transporting the Ark of the Covenant. Well, at this time, uh, Israel had become very lax in their worship. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't in the place where it should have been, and so David wanted to get Israel back on track in their worship, and he wanted to move the ark to where it was supposed to be. And then Israel could be restored to proper worship. So they had to move the ark. And what did they do? Well, only the sons of Kohath could move it. Only the descendants of Kohath could do that. And so in their restoration to proper worship, they chose to go about something that is right in the wrong way. So they start out to do what's right, and they did it wrong. So they put the Ark of the Covenant up on a cart, which they weren't supposed to do. And I guess we have to give them credit for this, that they did have some understanding about the sacredness of the Ark because they didn't put it on an old beat-up wagon that they'd used to carry firewood or grain or something like that. But no, they they respected the Ark of the Covenant, and so they put it on a brand-new cart. They were only going to move it on a brand-new cart because that's what the Ark of the Covenant deserves. That's the Holy Ark of God. So they put it on the, uh, on, the, on the on the cart, and they took oxen, two oxen, and they started to pull that, had those oxen pull that cart to move it where they wanted it to go. Well, as they were moving the ark, one of the oxen stumbled, and the load shifted. And Uzzah, one of the sons of Koath, reached out to steady the ark. And as he did, immediately, God struck him dead. Nobody was to touch the ark. And so what God did was to make an example of Uzzah. Worship must be according to spirit and truth. Now was Uzzah a good man? Well, I have no doubt that he was. And this is why David was so upset that God killed him. Did Uzzah think that he was doing the right thing? Well, I, I think he did think he was doing the right thing. I mean, he saw the ark and it looked like it was going to fall. He has no evil intent in his heart when I mean, what he really wants to do is keep the ark from falling because that is the sacred piece of God's furniture. And he wanted to protect the most symbol, sacred piece of Israel's worship. And so he reached out to steady it and God killed him. He was wrong in what he did. Now, it doesn't matter, you see, it doesn't matter what we think is acceptable. Only God determines how it should be done. God is very concerned that worship is according to spirit and truth, and that's all that he accepts. Now, does that tell us something? I think it ought to tell us that there's a lot that goes on for worship that it's not true worship. In fact, I think that most people do not worship God. I think that most people worship self, that worship is designed for them and not for God. I mean, how many times do you hear people complain about music or whatever it is? And what do they say? Well, it just doesn't feel good to me. It doesn't, it doesn't lift my spirits. The music just doesn't get me going. But guess what? Worship is not about you. Worship is about God. And it has to be according to truth. And what is it you do in worship? You praise and you adore God for who he is and what he's done. And so I'd be much more concerned about how God feels about worship than the way that you feel about worship. Now let me show you how that churches go off and they do things that are right in their own eyes rather than what's right by God's standard. One thing that they do is that they use the worship time to draw a crowd. You find churches even market worship. They'll tell you how good their worship is, read it in, the, in their advertisements or listen to it on the radio, how great the worship is in this church. And they try to draw people by their music and by their showmanship and by their dramas and by their entertainment. And so they design church services around the preferences of the lost so they can draw those people in and make them feel comfortable. And so they try to attract the lost to church with music and entertainment and they call it worship. But how can a lost person worship God in truth? Do you know that there's no place in the Bible that says, now hear me out on this, there's no place in the Bible that says that the church is designed for the lost. I mean the church service. No place does it tell us a church service is designed for the lost. The Bible doesn't say that the meeting of the church is for evangelism. Now it's good to be evangelistic, Later on, we'll talk about how that's part of our worship. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that the church is for evangelism in that sense or that we're to make it a point to try to attract the lost to the services. Now, we come to the church for the purpose of fellowship and the edification of the saints. We come for worship, and only the redeemed can truly worship God. Now, it's passing strange how that's got turned upside down, and you'll find that in many fundamental churches that they'll teach you that the church is not even a place for worship. That we don't worship in here, we worship out there. And they say the place for evangelism is in here. But that is not what the Bible says. This is the very reason that we have outreach training. It's for you to carry evangelism out there. Outreach is not designed for you to walk across the aisle in the church and find somebody that's lost so you can witness to them. Well, the outreach sessions are designed for you to learn to carry your evangelism outside of the church with you every day. Now, we thank God for the opportunities that we have to preach the gospel in here, and we do that often. And we're not going to turn lost people away from the services, so hear me out. That's not what I'm saying. We're very happy when people bring their lost friends to church. But I'll tell you this, we're not going to design the worship services for them We're not going to try to entertain them or entertain you. We come to worship God. I don't want to make any golden calves. And I don't want to offer any strange fire. I don't want to touch any arks. Because God does not take kindly to false worship. We can only worship God in truth. Now here's here's another way that people go wrong in worship. Secondly, worship requires the preaching of the word. Worship requires the preaching of the word. Worship is based on truth, and truth comes from the word of God. Jesus prayed to the Father, and he said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. That's John 17:17. 17, 17. Well, where do you get truth? Well, the only place you can get it is from the word of God. There isn't any place else for you to go. So if we come here to worship, how are we going to base that worship in truth? Well, it ought to be obvious that the place that we have to go is to the Word of God. And the principal means of disseminating the Word of God is how? By the preaching of the Word. This is the way that God has designed for us to give people truth. This is what Paul said to Timothy. Preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. That was the charge given to Timothy. Timothy. Now, he was a young pastor and the central, number one activity for him was to preach the word. Always be ready to preach the word. And what's the word? The word is truth. What else did Paul say about it? Second Timothy 3, he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works." So what do you think that we're going to do in church? Well, we're going to equip the people of God. We're going to give them the word that's good for every area of your life. This is what the word of God does. It fills all the deficiencies in your life. It fills up all of the voids. And so if you're missing something, the word of God will fill it. That's what it says. That's what scripture says. It will furnish you to all good works. And of course, that includes worship, doesn't it? The Word of God makes us ready for worship. And so what, what better way is there to worship? You are designed for this as a chief priority, and preaching is the best means of worship. Well, here then is another thing that's passing strange that many people say that they want to worship. People will come and they say, Well, we're looking for a place for our family to worship. And they come to the services of Brian and they stay for about 45 minutes and they determine that Brian is not the place for them to worship. A few months ago, I was speaking to some folks and they were telling me about some relatives that had visited our church and they said, they love you. I guess that was a good thing. Uh, they said, they love you, but they don't like the music. They like drums and they like the beat and they like the loud stuff. That's really the kind of worship that they like. Well, I happen to know what church that that family attends, and I know that the preaching there is watered down. It's dumbed down, about as dumb as it can get. It's full of feel-good stories and object lessons and little homilies that make you feel warm and fuzzy, but there is no preaching about things like holiness. But wait a minute, God's a holy God. When he gave tabernacle worship, it centered on righteousness and holiness. No one was allowed to approach the congregation, the tabernacle of the congregation, without absolute reverence for the holiness of God. Well, how do you do that? (laughs) You can only do that by being holy people. The high priest wore a band on his forehead that said, Holiness to the Lord. And so how do you ever hope to even begin worship if there is no holiness? And yet I heard the preacher of this church that I'm just talking about in his last Sunday morning sermon say that God is not a perfectionist. God is not a perfectionist. What happened to what Jesus said in John or in Matthew 5:48? Be ye perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. But God's not a perfectionist, that's what he said. And you might be surprised to learn that these are people that are affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention and the Conservative Baptist Convention. So there's a little preaching in this church about hell. What does Christ save us from? Doesn't he save us from hell? Without that message, there is no gospel. There's no reason to even have a church. And they see what they've done? They've abandoned the real basis for worship, and they put worship into a music style. And 98% of the time, the songs are mindless little ditties that have no theological content and they're intended to work people into frenzy. The preaching is weak as skim milk and the people believe they're really tearing it up with worship. Last week in that church, the Sunday morning sermon was 20 minutes and at 1230, they had line dancing. Is that worship? Is that what we are here to do in God's church? Twenty minutes of the most powerful thing that God has given us to give people truth—the very and the very pinnacle of worship—is preaching. And you cut it down to a twenty-minute little thing of you thinking, "I don't even know what you call it," and you call that preaching. And then you have wine dancing afterward, and so pretty much what it is. Let's get rid of the preaching. Let's get to the dancing. That—that's what we really want to do. Jesus said you must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the first place that you look for worship is not in music. You know people are always going to be wrong when they come and they say they care nothing at all about what's said from the pulpit. They want to know what is the music like. Worship is not necessarily in music. And how confused is it to call a song leader a worship leader? A worship begins with truth and truth begins with with the Word of God. It begins by broadcasting in the pulpit the Word of God. And so your worship leader is your pastor. Your worship leader is the one who delivers to you the Word of God. So worship begins with truth, and that truth needs to be substantial. Now, we don't toot our horn around here because we realize that delivery is not all that good, but I'm confident of this, you will get the truth. You will get the Word of God. You won't get sickles. You'll get the meat of God's Word. And I believe that you'll also get understanding of what the Word of God means. I mean, how many people go to church for years and they have very, very little understanding of the Bible? They don't know what the Bible means. I mean, there are people that come here and, and they've been Christians for years and they hear things that we say they've never heard before. They went to church for worship, and there was precious little truth. And the translation of that is there's precious, to know, precious little to no worship. Now, if you think you're worshiping because you sing a catchy tune, and you get your head wagging, and your, and your feet clapping, your, your hands clapping, and your feet stomping, you're sadly mistaken about that. You're not worshiping. You're worshiping you know not what. And so what you've done is you've erected an altar to a God, to a God, but it's not the God. So worship begins with truth, and truth comes from the Word of God. See, the focal point of worship will always be this. Always this. Everything that we do here is to get you to this, the truth of God's Word. We want you to know the mighty works of God so that you can appreciate what God has done for you and how that Jesus gave his life for you. That's what it's all about. It's not about jumping up and down. It's not about swinging to a beat. It's not about line dancing. It's not about all kinds of worked up emotions. Now, we can worship God with emotion. There's nothing wrong with emotions as long as those emotions are not there to please you. The real key here, is are you worshiping at the altar of God's desires or of your desires? And if you stop short of truth, you haven't worshiped God. You've only offered strange fire. Now that's all I have time for tonight. There's a lot more that I have to say about worship. This is what we were made for. The reason that we live is to worship Jesus Christ. And so let's worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to examine us, to look at every word that we've said, to every scripture that we read, to every comment that's made, that all of it would be said in truth because only truth will glorify you. Only truth truly worships you. Lord, we pray that you would make us a church that lives by the Bible, that this is where We find our hope. It's where we find our direction. Here is where we find what way we are to worship. Lord, I just pray that you'd open our eyes to this and help us every time that we come into this building, we have a service, that our eyes are only on you. Nothing to please us, but we want to worship you through your word in spirit and in truth. Bless us, Lord. Help us to do that. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. dot